Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Recently, we've spoken more about consumer companies, but today we focus on B2B and particularly the challenge of building sales. Mads Jensen of Superseed specializes in investing in B2B SaaS and helping companies start selling and developing the right processes. We talk about how to find customers, how to know when you have product market fit, and much more. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harbourandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today on the podcast, we are joined by Mads Jensen, who is managing partners Superseed. Welcome to the podcast, Mads. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. Our pleasure. So as usual, we want to find out a bit more about you. So can you please tell us how you became an EIS fund manager? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I'm I, I'm a tech, I'm a tech guy. I mean, I'm an entrepreneur and technologist by background. And so I, I got my first computer back in 1984, which is it's a while ago now. And I completely fell in love. So over the years, I taught myself to code software, first basic and then C++ as it was back then. And, and I felt sure the computers, they were going to change the world. And so after high school, I was trying to find out how could I work with computers to be part of changing the world. And, and I felt sure the business was the answer. And so the question was then what to study. And I thought I already know how computers work. So then I chose to go and study business in Copenhagen at CBS. And after graduating, I came close to starting a computer vision software company together with a couple of PhD friends from the Technical University in Copenhagen. And, and I really wanted to build the software business, but I didn't feel I was quite ready to take investor money I was in my early 20s and I, I said I wanted to learn how tech companies, they work first. Mm-hmm. So I went to work for the biggest tech company I could find. And back then, IBM was the biggest tech firm uh, in the world. And so I, I had an opportunity to go work at their European headquarters in, in Paris. And I did that for a few years before transferring over to IBM in London. And, uh, and when, I, when I came to IBM, my initial plan was to stay there for three years to learn the ropes. Mm-hmm. But I, I just I kept getting more and more interesting opportunities within the company. And after a few years, I ran a sort of a meaningful part of IBM's UK business. And I also did work at M&A, both pre and post acquisition. And, and sort of overall, I, I learned a lot. And so after some, some years, I was sort of like, you know, three years turned into four and five and mm-hmm. six. And sort of, and, and so I, I asked myself, so what about that software company I wanted to build? And so that was the conundrum. I, I wanted to build a software business, but I was completely wrapped up in, in just being part of this corporate machine, right? With the quarterly business cycle and hitting sales numbers and all that stuff. And so I just couldn't find the brain space to, to, to sort of you know, break out, if you will, and, and, and start a business. So I decided to go to, uh, to INSEAD in Fontainebleau for a year to just, just get a little bit out of the corporate cycle and, and, and sort of refocus my energies on my next venture. And I had a great year there. And then on, on graduating the MBA in 2009, I started a SaaS company called Sapphira. And so I returned to London to build up that company together with a business partner. And at Sapphira, we wanted to help the construction industry tackle the issue of poor building quality, in particular sort of energy use and daylight. And so we made a SaaS platform that could help architects do that. And where did the idea come from? Because you, you obviously started thinking about computer vision. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's so. I, I, I think, look, there's software is just so powerful, and sort of this idea that you can take software and use that to transform the way a business works. I mean, it just fascinates me, right? This is what I did at IBM, and mm-hmm. and that's what we wanted to do with with Sapphira. And I was looking at a number of different different areas where we could start businesses. And my my business partner, he had a 
background as a civil engineer and had worked on the Soler, which was the first sort of green, if you will, apartment high rise in New York City back mm-hmm. when that was finished in 2002. And he said, making that a green building, making that a sustainable building had been super complicated and super difficult. And he had really missed having some better software to do that at the time. And so we thought, look, we can make that better software. And that was that was the start of that business. So they're definitely fulfilling a need in practice. Well, you know, we we thought so. I mean, we we did. Uh, we, so we went and spoke with with a hundred you know architects and other building designers before really starting out and 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 sort of mapped out the you know what we felt were the customer requirements and then then we started the business and yeah, built it up over over seven years, raised venture capital to so quite quickly. So we started the business in London and quite quickly became a U.S. business because that was where the gravity of the customer set uh, mm-hmm. and customer base was. And so I ended up commuting from London to New York for, for six years uh, until in 2016, we have an opportunity to, to exit the company to Trimble, uh, which is a large US tech firm. And so we, we, we sold in, in 2016. And that, that is really what led me on to, to supersede and investing because after exiting Sapphira, I met uh, Dan Boyer, and he's also a sort of a lifelong entrepreneur and, and, and business operator. And we thought, look, we really want to build the VC fund we would have liked to work with when we build our own companies. Okay. And and so we wanted to build a VC fund that was very kind of hands-on and operational and, and where we sort of felt, you know, where the investors could really help the founders figure out all the tricky stuff you have to figure out, especially at the early stages. So that became the genesis of Superseed. You know, we set up in, in, in 2017, we decided to set up the business. And yeah, have invested in 14 companies so far out of the first fund, just agreed terms on number 15, and you know, really enjoying working with great founders and, and helping them on, the, on their journey. Excellent. So you mentioned you started Superseed. Tell us a little bit more about what Superseed actually is. Yeah, absolutely. So we're a, we're a fund, you know, a fund by founders, for founders. I mean, we love backing technical founders and support their journey from C to Series A. And we are quite hands-on compared to other funds. People sort of compare our board meetings to workshops. I mean, we, we don't, it's kind of, we're not... We're not about tea and biscuits. We are really about rolling up our sleeves and figuring out, you know, whether it's, you know, how do we get to product market fit? How do we get to go to market fit? What are the, what is the ideal customer profile? What is the market segmentation? What are, what are, what are our pricing strategies? We sort of, we, we try to go, go deep. And so we have a combination uh, over the years of things we've developed that are both a set of processes and also some kind of some workshop modules. And then we have an extensive network of coaches we work with that can help support founders. We've also built up a, an internal sales and marketing team that can help the, the firms we work with. And so that means that uh, you know, already before, before we invest, we'll typically you know, help the founders uh, you know, prospect, find customer opportunities, and introduce them to at least 10 new customer prospects so that they have a, you know, so they can get some direct market feedback and we can see how the market reacts to, to their technologies. This is just one of the things we do to, to really try and help with the blocking and tackling of, of building up those businesses. Yeah, I, I thought it would be a good idea to dig into this a little bit more because the sort of whole sales marketing issues for startups is key. Um, it's not the only key issue, but it, 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 you know, it looms largest in a lot of people's minds. Now, you focus primarily on B2B SaaS, I think. Is that right? That's right. Yep. And I'm sure most listeners know what it is, but maybe you could tell us what's B2B to SaaS and why do you like it as an investor? Gosh, yeah. I mean, there are two components to it, I guess. There's the B2B part and then there's the SaaS part. And I mean, I, 
I guess one way to think about kind of B2B is you can sort of think of the world as one great big value net, right? Everything is that is created is produced so that it can be, you know, flow into this great big value net, a value chain. And then ultimately end of it, there is an individual consuming something. So, uh-huh. so those are the consumers. And so, you know, you might be making machines or software or sell accounting services to businesses. And those businesses might sell machines or software or services to other businesses, but ultimately in the end, someone is going to make something that gets sold to or bought by a consumer uh-huh. who consumes that product. And so those are consumer businesses. So they're businesses that, that sell to consumers. And then there's everything else, right? The businesses that sell to other businesses. And those are the companies we work with. So we really like the idea of business to business. And 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 why that? Well, it's because you know, two things, I guess. First of all, I'm fascinated by business processes, and which is very distinctly different from making, I guess, widgets that consumers like to buy. But there's also something around how you build the company where consumer companies are often very marketing driven, uh, uh-huh. but, but B2B companies are very sales driven, especially at the early stages. And so what you have to be excellent at when you build a B2B company is you have to be excellent at sales. And sales is a discipline. It's a skill. And once you know and once you learn and once you have the insights in how to help companies become better at selling, that's a, that's an advantage. And I'd say anecdotally, you know, what, what often happens is you have, you know, great technical founders create, you know, amazing technologies, but because they haven't had the experience of selling, they sometimes get outsold by other companies that maybe have inferior technologies, but are just better at sales and marketing. And so what we try and do is to find the best technical founders and help them with the B2B sales part. Uh, of their business, because we think that can really help accelerate them and make and actually make them the winners in the marketplace. So, so, so that's an interesting how you sort of say you want to find founders and develop their sales selling skills. Other people might say, well, actually, we like the team and we want the technical guy and the sales guy. Is that something you think about uh, as being attractive or? No, I mean, look, there there are many ways to create value. You know, venture cap- capital is a services business. You know, it's a little bit. I guess it's a little bit like if you're a, if you're a painter, you know, and you say I'll paint houses, but I'll only paint them white, right? And you might say, well, actually, I can also be cream or green or something else. And I think venture capital is the same thing. You know, if if I say I'll only back perfect teams, that's the only thing I do. That's fine. Then you just have to accept that every team, every business that could be a good business, but that doesn't have a perfect team to start out with. It's not going to be a good investment opportunity for you. And that's most companies. <laughs> Bingo, right? So we think we think about it as, as kind of early stage businesses, C-stage companies. They might have amazing qualities, but the teams are often not complete. Mm-hmm. So if we can help augment, it's not, a, it's not only about teaching uh, founders how to sell better. We can all learn how to be better at that. But it's also about saying, okay, you know, maybe we need to augment that team. Maybe we need to help them hire their first head of sales. Maybe we need to help train that person or find coaches for them or help them with sales methodologies or techniques, or maybe we need the need to help the founder know how to manage a sales leader if they haven't done that before. So there's so many components to this that actually around team building. And so I think for us, we're thinking, you know, teams are important, but but I think at the end of the day, if you only back perfect teams, I think you limit yourself a lot. And I think our our service to the industry is we 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 like teams that are great and we think they can be great even if they don't are, if they can't do everything that they need to do when they get to series, I don't know, CDE, public market, IPO. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So I think one of the challenges when companies are starting out is to sort of say, where do we get our first customer? Quite often they've got an idea and then it's a case of, oh, we've got to go out and find that first customer or those first five customers. 
How do you think customers should have, not how do you think founders or companies should be approaching that? Yeah, so we, we observe sort of two patterns broadly. There are founders that either don't talk to enough customers, customer prospects, and, and just are too internally focused. And it's not because there's anything wrong with them. I mean, some people, they just, they like to work on product and, and like to perfect product and technology. And that's great. We need that. But you also need input from customers. So for them, it's about talking to more customers, just getting out of the building, getting answers, right? Make less assumptions or or, or spend more time validating your assumptions with the people that are ultimately going to mm-hmm. pay. Uh, pay the bills. And then the, there's the other category, which are people that talk to too many. And what I mean by that is they're not focused enough. So they'll talk to anybody who wants to talk to them. And the sort of ideal customer profile is not clear in their head. Mm-hmm. You've got to do a little bit of that early on just to get your bearings. But quite quickly, you need to have an idea of who is my ideal customer profile? Who is it I, I want to make sort of the mainstay of, of my launch market? And then you've got to focus all your time on them and sort of almost ignore everybody else a little bit. And the reason is that when you're a seed stage company, you can't serve everybody. You can't be everything mm-hmm. to everybody. And every time you talk to a new customer segment or category, they're going to give you potentially conflicting signals. If you're trying to build a business that sells to mid-market or small customers, and you then go and talk to, I don't know, Google or British Telecom or Barclays, they're going to give you requirements that aren't relevant for your small customers. And they're potentially going to send you down the wrong, wrong route and, and vice versa. So, so pick your segment and be really, really focused and disciplined about sticking to it. We think that's, that's important. Yeah. So how do you actually choose that segment? Is it a case of you find the segment that matches the founder's vision? Because I think founder's perspective, I would imagine, is probably whoever will buy my product, that's who I want to speak to. There's an element of chicken egg about that. Yeah, I mean, so the best businesses are those that don't sort of, that aren't sort of just, you know, born from one day to the next, right, out of nothing. The best businesses, they have some history, some past, some, 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 some found, some origin story that has given them certain insights into a segment. So, you know, if, if you've worked in, in um, you know, in, 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 in corporate banking for 10 years and you know a lot about that space and you then go and start a startup, you know, you'll probably have a vision for a product to solve problems you had when you worked in that space. And that'll be a great place for you to start. It's hard if you don't know anything about the market you're selling into. That's that's really tricky in B2B to be successful because most most B2B processes are so esoteric. You know, we look from the outside of big companies and sort of say, look, that should be their problem. But you need to have quite a good sense of what it is. To, to, to make the right product. And so I'd say, if you don't know anything about your market, yeah, I'm just talk to, you know, pick, pick something and learn everything about it. But more often than not, founders, they will already have a starting point. They will work somewhere or they will have, there will be something, some gra- there's gravity around something. And I think that's where they should start and then validate. And then of course, you can then go down a route and you can say, well, ultimately, we might learn that that isn't an ideal market for us. We need to pivot. That's fine, then you've tried it. But focus is key and really working through that market is, mm-hmm. is essential. Yeah, because I hear a lot about getting founders focused. And the danger of a founder also when it comes to customers is there's this feature and that's feature. You get a feature bloat. Anyone they speak to has an idea that's got to be a feature, whereas focusing on what the core feature set can be a challenge. Yeah, I mean, it's completely linked to to having the ideal customer profile clear in your head, right? I mean, if you if you have a narrow definition of who you're selling for, you're selling to, who you're serving, and what you're trying to do for them, having that crystal clear, then will often help you figure out well, what are what are the features that really matter to that particular demographic. 
Mm-hmm. Once you've got your first customer or the first few customers, there's always that thought about we're looking to scale up. When are we looking to scale up? When do you go from saying, right, we found a few customers, we think we know what we're doing, right, let's make a repeatable process let, and, and let's go for scale. How do you decide when that trigger point is? That's a terrific question. So that's the whole sort of when do you have product market fit? And a good way to measure that is to look at customer success metrics. So product market fit, essentially, the way we think about it is you, you have customers that use the product on a repeat basis, pay you money, and will refer you to other customers in this segment. Because you need to have all of those things. And if you do enterprise sales, enterprise contracts, you sign customers up for a 12-month contract. Well, the challenge is now you have 12 months until that contract renews. And it's not until that 12 months. If you just look at your renewal rates that you know, you know whether you could say that customer is, is a repeat customer or not. So what you want to look for is an early metric, an early indicator of customer success. Mm-hmm. And the best thing you can do is to instrument your application in such a way that enables you to say, look, we know that when customers have done these things on our platform, we think they're likely to be sticky. And you can go, you can figure that out by talking to them. You can figure that out by looking at behaviors. So you know, what Slack did, for example, is they, they sort of developed this metric that said, when customers, when users, they've sent 2000 messages internally on the platform, they're likely to be sticky. Mm-hmm. And they measured how many of their customers got to that threshold and how quickly they got there. So define a metric and sort of a leading customer success, success metric that's relevant for your business and then measure on a cohort basis how quickly your customers get there. So you might say in January, it took six months before half of our customers got there. We keep improving the product. And by the time we got to July, it only took two months before 80% of our customers got to that metric. Boom. Now we have product market fit, Mm -hmm. right? Now customers are not going to churn out because they're getting value. Now is the time to invest and go big in sales and marketing. And and when you're actually saying we want to invest in the market, is this a simple fact of you just hire a few salespeople, you create the process? Is it that simple or? Yeah, I mean, I, yes, I, effectively. I mean, it's it's there are excellent playbooks for this. You find that you know either you you find somebody who uh, I think ideally, if you're sometimes founding teams will have one of the founders who has done this before and and will just know how to do it. And if not, you need to find somebody who's good who can build up a sales team for you. Well defined playbooks on on what that should look like. Initially, you'll have a a sales lead, and they'll probably if they're doing enterprise sales, they'll probably have one or two SDRs that do prospecting. For for them, sales development reps, and you typically have a ratio of two to one, and then they'll work through that. And once you can see you're getting the right productivity metrics out of those reps, you then start to hire more reps. You might then upgrade some of them, if you will, to become account execs, so they do not just prospecting, but they also do selling. And then in parallel, you build out your customer success team and your account management team so that you can upsell into accounts you've already sold to. So exactly. I mean, it's it's not rocket science, and there are great playbooks for how it's done, and this is exactly one of the things we help our companies figure out once they get to that threshold how to you know, how to go about sort of the, the step-by-step process. Yeah. And how often do you see what what became known as the chasm? So the, the book Crossing the Chasm is kind of famous, rightly so. And one of the key things it points out is that your early customers and your scale-up customers are actually slightly different or in some case significantly different. And I sort of, like everybody else has read this, and I wonder, is this something that's kind of nice in theory? You just don't see it often in practice, or is this something that you see all the time? 
No, I think it's it's absolutely right because that's back to your chicken and egg, right? You know, initially you sort of you we, we want it, we need we need to sell to companies that want to buy from us, or to prospects that want to buy from us, and those are early adopters and, and visionaries, and they're out there and they're real, and all sectors have them, and and those are the people to look for. In I would say in some sectors and some businesses they experience that crossing much faster than others. The rate of adoption in some industries and kind of the types of buyers you have is different in, in some businesses compared to other businesses. Mm-hmm. So we have we have companies that sell to, you know, we have SaaS companies that sell to other SaaS companies and we have SaaS companies that sell into completely different industries like manufacturing or, 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 or sort of more traditional industries. And the rate of adoption is, is very different in, in between the two and you can accelerate and you can cross the chasm quicker if you sell to businesses that have a higher rate of tech adoption. There's no doubt about it. But the pattern is the same and you see it everywhere. I would say where the Jeffrey Moore's book is excellent. I think there's great, great models in there. But I think that's kind of where where the the practice has moved on is what what they couldn't what he couldn't do and what, what people couldn't do back then was they couldn't measure product market fit the way we, we can today. Because today we have cloud computing and people running off central servers and we can see with log files how people use our technology. And that gives us metrics on the level of product market fit. So it's not, it's less of a theoretical abstract, you know, I think we are now crossing the chasm. It's more, what are the what are the cohort analysis? What do they say? What do the numbers say? So we can sort of be more data-driven today, I think, than maybe you could to 25 years mm-hmm. ago. And presumably for you as an external investor, that gives you that that helps give you more confidence because you're saying, if I want to fund the next round, if I want to fund the scale up. You can actually point to the metrics rather than going along and saying, well, we think we have, we're seeing this, we're seeing that. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And I would I would say on top of that, uh, as an investor, so we concentrate on investing at the early stages. But, you know, when our companies do well and they have data to prove it, that makes it easier to raise the next round, which benefits the company and also benefits benefits us. So, yeah, everybody wins. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you think about the length of sales cycles? Because one of the things B2B has been notorious about is that sales cycles can be, frankly, horrendously long. And I think when you, particularly when you start mixing these with the length of funding cycles, it can be a challenge. Absolutely. I mean, sales is a discipline. You got to do your sales qualification. You got to know your sales methods. You got to do, you've got to be rigorous around forecasting. You got to be really, really hot on your ideal customer profile. You got to sell to people that are in that ICP. All that stuff helps bring down sales cycles. It's real. I mean, it's it's just like making software as a discipline and it's, it's sort of, it's a, it's a skill and a craft that you, you can hone and learn. So is, so is selling. And then there are just, there are lots of good frameworks that the industry has developed over decades that you can use. So yes, for sure, we have companies with longer sales cycles and companies with shorter sales cycles. But I say the best, the best run companies, they have predictability in their sales cycles. And that's really what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And have you seen that predictability change over the pandemic? Because we've heard noises in some places about some people are more open to taking software on and some industries has been disrupted. Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt, some industries have been more disrupted than others. Some industries run physical you know, have physical establishments, whether it be in manufacturing or in 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 retail or in hospitality, where the, the customers' business is closed. So mm-hmm. that you know, all bets are off then in in, in terms of, of of that. But fortunately, in our portfolio, we we didn't we our exposure was mainly to companies that sold into businesses 
that that weren't hit hard by the pandemic and so we we didn't see a big uh, impact if anything i mean frankly all our companies grew through 2020 and some of them grew very very rapidly so we weren't uh, we weren't negatively affected by it but for sure we've seen it in some sectors have been hit very hard no doubt yeah no it, it's definitely been um, a k shape as, as they, they talk about so earlier you mentioned pricing, and I'd be interested to hear about your thoughts on pricing because there's a sort of joke almost in venture capital circles about you go into a company and the first thing you say is put up your price. How do you think about pricing and, and, and getting your, your companies to price their products correctly? Yeah, look, I, I think there are several stages to a company's life cycle, and I think it's a mistake to model those stages too much. And then it's important to just be mindful of the fact that when you're just starting out, the purpose of what you're trying to do when you are looking to find product market fit is not to maximize your profit. It's to get customers so you can demonstrate product market fit because that's what will unlock the next round of funding so you can invest in more sales and marketing, grow your revenue base, that will eventually get you to profit. Now, software is a wonderful business model you know, you have very high gross margins. So it's mainly a revenue game, which is why revenue is so important and growth is so important. So at the early stages, you should optimize for customer commitment. You should optimize for getting customers on board. That doesn't mean they shouldn't pay anything. They should pay a reasonable price, mm-hmm. something that is reasonable to them and to you. Yeah. I, I've seen lots of people talking about how if you get people who don't pay anything, then you don't actually get pr- proper customer market. Yeah, because- no, that's not a customer. Somebody who's not paying you anything is not a customer. You, they have to pay something. There has to be a commitment. There has to be a little bit of pain on all mm-hmm. sides. If you have yeah. a the good, pro- good prospect, will understand that. But, but, but if you sort of if you have no customers at all, and you're sort of thinking, look, you know, I really want, I don't know, a hundred thousand for that contract, and the customer only wants to offer seventy thousand, so I'm going to walk away from it. It's like, no, you've misunderstood what you're here to do, right? Take that 70,000, get that customer on board, learn from them, build mm-hmm. your business, go find the next one. So now optimize for customer commitment, customer engagement, get them on board, definitely make revenue, but but just it's not a profit optimization game at the early stages. That's mm-hmm. not what you have to do, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, so does pricing optimism, optimization more come at the sta- scale up stage? Absolutely, yeah. Once you're profit, pro- product market fit, once you know that customers are gonna buy your product and use it, and recommend it and not churn, that's when you start thinking about, okay, so how can we how can we scale up our, how can we build a scalable go-to-market model? Can we create go-to-market fit? So kind of that scalable, repeatable, profitable distribution model. And that is closely linked to pricing, of course, right? Because then it becomes all about kind of what is my, what is my first year revenue? How does that compare to my customer acquisition costs? What's my payback time? So all that kind of optimization happens after product market fit, not, not when you're still trying to get product market fit. So what mistakes do you typically see founders making in all this sort of, you know, because presumably founders do stumble along the way. Um, no, absolutely. No, we love founders. I was a founder. I've made more mistakes than I can, I can remember. <laughs> I, I, uh, and you, you do it all the yeah. time because you have so limited knowledge and what you're trying to do is so hard. And, you know, most folks haven't even run a company before. They haven't even run a, a, a small part of a business before, right? So there's so many challenges that, that, that come with it. But I go back to what I said before. The typical mistakes we see are either not talking to enough customers or, or to talk to too many in the sense of not being focused enough. So if, if you are on ideal customer profile, if you're talking to people that are relevant to what you're doing and they're in the sweet spot, talk to as many as you can find and talk to as many as will talk to you. you know, sometimes founders, they will sort of, they won't really have gotten their business off the ground, but they're talking about 
five different alliance projects and they've got these new product offerings and all this stuff happening here and there. And, and, and all that creates a lack of focus. That means they're not really, they're not really moving forward, right? They're moving in all directions and, and none. That, that I think is the biggest, the biggest challenge many face. Mm-hmm. And do you think that to a certain degree is somebody's personality traits or is this something where it's just inexperience? I think good entrepreneurs to see opportunity everywhere. When you have a little bit of money in the tank and big ambitions and you're a little bit impatient, which I think entrepreneurs are, I think it is human nature that we can sort of go butterfly catching a little bit and, and go look for, oh, this is shiny thing over here, or this is shiny thing over there. We haven't, don't really have momentum on this thing over here yet, so let's go and try out these other things. But but And I think that's where good external investors can really help you. Is, you know, it, it's okay to take three months to focus on this thing and really to test it out. And, and sort of almost sort of block out all these other nice opportunities that are that are calling your name. And it's okay, take your time. And it's okay, you're not gonna book any sales this month, right? Just stick, if you think this is the way to go, stick with it for a little bit. And so I think I think good partners, good good investors can can add value there. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting you say about not hit, you know, saying it's okay to not hit the sales figures every month because I'm sure a lot of managers or founders do feel they've taken the money from investors and they need to give payback. That create in itself creates a pressure. And some investors are also probably actually, come on, we want to deliver, we want to see that. Yeah, um, absolutely, absolutely. But the challenge is then after six months, you end up with four customers that are in four different sectors using four different feature sets in your product, right? And you're not really, you don't have product market fit. You're not really further along. And you're just you're just six months closer to running out of money, and you haven't really proved anything, right? So you have a little bit of revenue, but you're you're nowhere in terms of building product market fit and in terms of getting to the next stage. So I think that's a huge risk, and 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 yeah, I come back to I think that's where good investors they can make a, a real difference. Mm-hmm. So is there anywhere else you think you as an investor or good investors can sort of contribute to getting this sales process in place? Because you talked about some of the things you do earlier on. Yeah, I mean, so 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 breaking it breaking it down, we think all of this stuff starts at the the top of the waterfall is the identity of the company, and with that we mean the purpose and the mission and the vision of the founders. What is it they're really here to do? What is the business they're here to try and build? Why are they doing it? Who are they trying to serve? Right, getting that stuff really clear. You'd be surprised the number of founders we talk with, and we will sort of will, you know, you, you you'll ask them who who are you serving, and you'll have two founders in the room, and you'll get three different answers. <laughs> so you can imagine if the who are you really serving top of the waterfall. If you're not aligned on that, you can imagine how much confusion that creates downstream in marketing messaging, sales messaging, product roadmaps, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So get those upstream things aligned in the team we think is really helpful. And that's, we spend a lot of time with our founders doing that upfront. And some of them are, they're all good at it, but it's just, if you haven't, you've been used to doing that before, you maybe didn't think about it. Mm-hmm. So so we sort of, we, 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 we spend time on that. Once you've done that, you then say, okay, here's who we're trying to serve. What is the ideal customer profile we should be talking to right now? And you define who that is. You go and talk to them. You get some feedback from the market on your proposition. And then you adjust your proposition if the feedback is bad. If the feedback is good, you close some business and you try and do some more. That then turns into sort of the embryonic sales playbook. 
your sales playbook. That's the kind of the, the A to Z of how should we be selling? How do we develop leads? How do we talk to them? How do we nurture them? How do we take them through our sales process? How do we qualify them? How do we demo the product? How do we bring them on board to make them happy and satisfied customers? I think if a company can do all of those things right, they are very far along. Right? It's, mm-hmm. it's your you're practically a series A then. Yeah, because this sounds wonderful. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and it, but, but it, all, it sounds wonderfully simple, but, but the reality, of course, is there are just there are lots of confusions and there are lots of distractions along the way and there's lots of uncertainty and you sort of think your customers might be over here, but actually, you know, you, you think you might be selling to insurance companies, but actually you should be selling to retail banks or you, you, there, there's so many things and so many small pivots you might have to do on, along the way. So that's just part of it as you work through, you know, what should my ideal customer profile really be? What should my sales playbook look like? And how do you encourage companies to pivot to re- if required? Because presumably it's very easy for them to almost be the other way. You say, okay, right, we fixed on insurers and they're, like, and they're so focused on insurers that they can't see that maybe the banks are better. Look, you will know pretty quickly, right? We've spoken to 20 customers. What do they say? None of them agreed that the problem was real. None of them have budget to solve this problem because they don't think it's relevant. None of them have a buying cycle. I mean, you have a kind of a, you know, use sales qualification, either band, the medic, kind of two sales frameworks to go through and try and try and qualify your opportunity. And if every single opportunity you talk to is, is sort of mildly disinterested, you're probably talking to the wrong segment, right? And, and, and then you need to, to, to pivot. So I, I think having discipline around how you do this is really important. It's super easy to have happy ears. Right. We had a nice meeting, tea and biscuits. Mm-hmm. They liked us. They seemed really friendly. I've they worked in those companies. More. Yep. Yep. And it's, and, but, but again, there are, there are good frameworks that will help you break out of that pattern and into, okay, what are actually the questions we need to answer? Who is the budget holder? Who is the decision maker? What's the compelling reason to act? That's all the classical questions. Can we answer them? If we can answer them and the answer's all right, then we're probably on track. Amazing. Let's continue. Right. So I, again, it's back to the discipline of how do you run a, a good sales process? And, you know, it's, everybody can learn that. This is not rocket science. Okay. And you talk about this process as a sort of universal process, which has a lot in common. Now, you also said every company is different. We understand that. But are there any sort of consistent sector issues or sector-wide issues? I mean, presumably there's something, I don't know, I can, is this a security issues in medicine or whatever that are concerns? Yeah. I mean, this is the million dollar question, isn't it? I mean, I guess essentially what you're, what you're asking is, is there a problem that is pervasive in a sector where nobody's built a business around it yet? I'm not necessarily looking for a business idea. I'm just saying. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> All I'm saying is that you, 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 as you apply this process in different areas, are there some areas where you, it applies one way and you find this industry, well, it's just this little bit different because of that industry. There are things like how do you prospect and what can you rely on? So should you prospect using LinkedIn or email or telephone? Now, the insight is you should use more telephone than you think, because in, in, in many industries, it's still the best way to reach decision makers. And then you should try and sell higher than you probably do. Too many companies will still prospect users that aren't decision makers. And that's great because you can talk to somebody who cares about what you do. But if the decision maker doesn't care, you're not going to make a sale. So then you're back to we can have lots of nice meetings with people who care about what we do, but they don't have a budget. They don't have authority. 
and they're not they're not going to spend 50k with us because it's a problem that they care about in their little corner of their job mm-hmm. but it's not something the bigger business cares about so yes it's, i'd say that what what varies is you know how do we how do you prospect how do you find your 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 leads how do you find people that care that that's an important one but i i i don't, I don't think we've created it i haven't seen a framework that suddenly sort of universally says oh if you're selling in in healthcare you should do it this way if you sell in that sector you should do it that way and there's a little bit of, of learning i think for all companies in terms of what, what works best here yeah yeah okay so it is pretty much a universal process then it's it's working for us. I mean, in, in terms of deploying at our companies and, and the companies that are, are good at implementing and are process driven are generally those that tend to do better. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you're talking about, very much a systematic approach. So that kind of resonates yeah. really, doesn't it? Yeah, no, there's a system to, 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 to this. It's a, and the, the beauty of startups, of course, is you can follow the process and you can do all things right. But if you're in a market where nobody cares about what you're trying to do, you're still not going to be successful. One question people sometimes ask is, you know, what's more important? Is it the market or is it the team or is it the technology? You've seen my list of questions coming. <laughs> uh, no, but you're not. I mean, this is kind of the, the perennial perennial question in, in venture capital. And I, the teams are super important. I mean, we back great founders, right? There's no doubt about it. The team has to be has to be good. But ultimately, you can augment teams, right? So if the team isn't perfect, you can augment the team. But if the market doesn't care, it's hard to fix that. So we sort of we 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 probably have a, a bias towards towards markets and customers, and in, in our diligence we focus a lot on customer feedback. It doesn't have to be customers today; it could be future, it could be prospects, right? Future customer feedback. So we'd like to sell to insurance companies. Well, let's talk to ten insurance companies that you think might be a customer and hear what they think about it. Do they care about the problem you're trying to solve? Mm-hmm. I suppose the other question that that springs to mind is that if you say we want to speak to insurance companies and find the decision makers if you're a little joe blogs founder how do you find these people is it just sort of lots of searching on linkedin or googling websites or yeah yeah it, it is it is it is link, linkedin is amazing for that googling websites I and mean, prospecting is very time consuming that's why as I mentioned before, when you have a it's kind of your early sales team structure is probably two sales development reps and one accounting sec or one sales lead who closes deals because it takes a long time to prospect. It takes a long time to find leads. Uh, and it's one of the things we help our portfolio companies do is we, we've set up a whole process to help them find early leads right? because it's, it's time consuming. But yeah, prospecting is it's just you've got to set days aside and you've got to sit down with LinkedIn and research your market, reach out to people, call them. Develop a script and call them and, and, and say, here's, you know, we, we are, we're, we're solving this problem and, and trying to figure out if that's something they care about. So what I'd like to do now is move on to our standard questions, though you've kind of beaten me to jump on one of them already. So what was the most recent publicly announced investment that you made and why did you make it? And so we invested in a terrific company called TechSembly. It's a super exciting company out of Singapore that's disrupting, disrupting the e-commerce platform space. And uh, they, they're just tackling e-commerce and, and kind of the, the tech that powers e-commerce in a completely different way to others that have gone before them. So we, we're very excited about them and about the, the leaders, uh, they have the business, the founders. And a technical point, Singapore company and you're a US, no, not a US, a UK investor in SAIS. Are they 
SAS or EIS eligible? Yeah, they, they, they are actually. Yeah, two, two, the two of the founders are are, are British, and uh, and uh, and they have a, a chunk of the business that's based in the UK. So yes, they uh, they are qualifying. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. <laughs> oh gosh, I mean, there's so many. We're generally here to support the founders in building a great company. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're the heroes, right? We're a supporting act at, at best. We we do need to hold them to account. And I think there is a particular investment, especially when we started out investing, where we probably let the founders drift for a little too long. Mm-hmm. And so that didn't didn't hold them sufficiently to account early enough. I mean, there's sort of this balance, balance between being a cheerleader, which we have to be, and we have to, it's hard to found a company and start it, and 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 then also sort of challenge them and 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 sort of try and help them get on track if they are if they're in the wilderness. And I think there was a particular situation where I think we were too slow to to really challenge them, and I think that cost us probably about nine months of execution. We got them back on track, and they're on track now, but but it was too long, and I think we should have pushed them a little bit more, a little bit earlier. Uh, so today we're quicker to react when, when we think uh, companies are steering the, the ship in the wrong course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I can, I can imagine it's very easily done if you, if, if you see just that little bit of progress and judging what's enough progress. Yeah, it's hard. yeah. So the EIS industry in which we work has got lots of nice generous tax release and lots of the good things about it, but it's far from perfect. What would you like to change about it? Oh, gosh. I, that's a good question. I... It's technical, and I am, like many people, I guess, frustrated sometimes by some of the rules and, and regulations. I think EIS is a great tool for the industry. I think some of the restrictions around how you can use EIS capital inside fund structures are not in the best interest of the industry. We would like to be able to raise more capital over longer and invest it to deploy it over longer time periods. Better for investors to get time diversification. You know, it'd be great if we could raise capital today, give investors relief today, and then deploy that capital over three or four years. That'd be better for investors, I think. There are ways to do it, but it it uh, they come with a lot of other uh, restrictions and constraints. So, I say EAS. It's yeah. It's a. I would call it a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can always get around that by investing in multiple years of funds or over time yeah absolutely absolutely yeah absolutely and 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 you and but you then need to get investors comfortable with that as a concept and where do you even start with that if people haven't been used to thinking that way then you then you need to sort of uh, explain to them that uh, that that's the way it's going to work for them i think many people they tend to think of eas as a way to optimize tax and maybe that's fair enough but we think about our tax bills on a year-to-year basis and sort of four years in the future is it's it's difficult, right? So if you're you're thinking about I want to commit some capital, you're sort of thinking about it in terms of, look, I've got a, you know, I've got this tax bill this year. This is what I can afford. This is what I'm going to set aside. Who knows what's going to happen three years from now, right? I don't know what my bonus payment is going to be, or how my company's going to perform, or whatever. So so it's it's harder to plan. So I think I think if you're a big institutional investor, it's different. You can sort of make very long term capital commitment decisions. But I think personal investors they probably tend to do that on a year to year basis. So, but you guys will have a view on that as well, I'm sure. But that, at least from our perspective, I think it'd be better for investors if you could deploy over a longer time period. Mm-hmm. That would be an interesting idea. 
So reading is something I do a lot of. Um, lockdown has been fantastic for helping me get through my reading, book, <laughs> reading list. Um, anything you like and would recommend to people? Oh, gosh, there's so many good books. A uh, favorite of mine is Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by Richard Rummelt. Oh, I haven't heard that one. Yeah, no, it's, it's just a terrific book on strategy in its broadest sense. It's a very, very, very nice book. I shall have a look at that. I'm going on holiday next week. Maybe I can get it in time before I go. <laughs> what do you wish you knew when you started with Superseed that you know now? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So when we started out with Superseed, we had a lot of experience on how to build companies, but it wasn't codified. It was sort of experience, right, that we'd acquired by osmosis and, and just, just being, 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 being there. We looked to help founders. We'd have lots of meetings with them and we'd spend lots of time trying to get things out of our heads into their heads. And we hadn't necessarily formulated everything into sort of models or structures yet. So it was it was more sort of speaking from experience. And it's not about telling the founders what to do. That that's their decision. But just about sharing, you know, what what in our experience works and what doesn't when you build B2B SaaS companies. So over the years, what we have spent a lot of time doing is we've codified a lot of this. So we have today some much better processes and frameworks and workshops we use. And it's just it's more scalable. We can transmit, we can we can share our knowledge faster and in a better way and more effective way. And so that's taken us years to develop, but it, it helps us tremendously and, and we're much more effective now. But yeah, it would have been great to have that sort of intellectual capital ready when we, when we started out. Yeah, yeah. Or even know that you were going to be doing that. Then yeah, might, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So if anyone wants to find out any more about what you're doing at Superseed, where should they go? Go to our website, uh, find us on LinkedIn, or, or send me an email. I'm Mads, M-A-D-S, at superseed.com. And uh, yeah, look forward to engaging and, and learning more about how we can be helpful. That's great. Thank you very much for coming on today, Mads. It's been great. Pleasure to be here, Brian. Thanks for having us. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon. <laughs>